beginning in verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved, and he was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. And when David's young men came, and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about four hundred men went up after David, while two hundred remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. And they were a wall to us both by night and by day, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak, uh, no, that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more so also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And so when Abigail saw David, she hurried, and she got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, 
For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord had done to my Lord, according to all the goodness or all the good that has been spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received her hand, received from her hand what she had brought to him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And as she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galilee. This is the reading of the word of God. How do you begin to describe a fool? Simply put, a fool is someone who lacks wisdom. But it's hard to describe a fool because this lack of wisdom can encompass so many different areas of life. Our actions, our speech, our approach to family, our approach to life, and even our approach to the Lord. And we've become really good at hiding our lack of wisdom. I think about the man who bought himself a yacht, his dream come true during his midlife crisis. And his wife was nervous because he had absolutely no experience sailing, but he knew that he could handle it and that he could figure it out. And so he bought the vessel, and for weeks he practiced in the harbor before taking the vessel out to sea. And finally, he talked his nervous wife into going out on the boat with him, and so gingerly she stepped aboard, and out into the harbor they headed on their way to sea. And he attempted to put her at ease. He said, hey, honey, listen here. I have been 
practicing in this harbor for weeks. I know where every rock, where every sandbar, where every shallow spot is. And at that very moment, a huge rock beneath the surface made this crunching sound from stem to stern of the boat. And sheepishly, the man looked at his wife and said, See here is one of those rocks passing by right now. How do you describe a fool? Our story begins with a fool who acts like a fool and who speaks like a fool. And even before we learn his name, he is identified to us in verse 3 by what he has, by how wealthy he is. That should be a warning sign for us because you never really want to be known by what you have more than who you are. And so you see that he is very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and thousands of goats. And Nabal is his name. And the name Nabal means fool. I don't know what your name means. My name means victorious one. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Appreciate that. You can thank your mother. She didn't name you Nabal. It means fool. And it tells us from the very beginning that he was harsh and badly behaved. The Bible speaks a lot about wisdom and folly. It tells us a lot about the characteristics of fools. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Isaiah 32 says, For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness. So the story begins with a fool, and David and his men are in the wilderness, and they come across the fool's servants, and there are thousands of animals. Now the wilderness, as you might imagine, could be a fairly dangerous place. It would not be uncommon to feel unsafe in the wilderness. And when 600 warriors happen upon you, what would most likely happen in the wilderness is that they would kill you and take all of your stuff. But David and his men didn't kill the servants of Nabal, nor did they take the flocks. In fact, just the opposite. It says that instead of stealing the sheep to feed themselves, David and his men protected the shepherds and their sheep. And it seems that they had done so for quite some time. And so when David makes a request of Nabal, he sends his ten young men offering peace to you and to your house, and then requesting food and provision. This is not quite the imposition that it might initially seem to be. It would be common hospitality for Nabal to say, David and these warriors have protected my great wealth for many weeks. The least I could do in return is provide some food for them on the feast day. But a fool responds like a fool. 
And so verse 10 tells us that Nabal answers the servants of David with a rather snide remark. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to the men who, I don't know, came from where? By this time, everybody knew who David was. <laughs> By this time in history, it tells us actually in chapter 18 that all of Israel and Judah had come to love David. And even Nabal knew enough about David to know that he was the son of Jesse. Even Nabal knew enough about David to know that he was no mere servant, but that he was in the court of the king. Even Nabal knew enough about David to know that he had been the one to defeat the giant. But a fool acts like a fool. And instead of doing the wise thing, he adds insult to his rejection, which enrages David. It's not lost on us that in some ways this fool is recognized by everybody around him as such. Verse 17, his servant calls him a worthless man. You can't speak to him. Verse 21, David says that he returns good for evil. Verse 25, his own wife, his own wife calls him a worthless fellow. That folly is with him. And it's not lost on us that this fool sounds in some of his makeup and characteristics an awful lot like King Saul. One who's recognized for his wealth, for his position, even for his power, and for his temper. One that no one can speak to. And so how would David react to this fool? Well, upon hearing Nabal's insult, David immediately fumes with anger, and he starts barking out orders for all the men to strap on their swords. And you can hear the clanking of the iron and the strapping of the leather as these men were fixing for battle. Four hundred of them prepare for a raid. Now, in some ways, it seems out of character for David. I mean, he is courageous, and he has been a warrior, and he has killed many Philistines, but he's been presented to us as measured and fairly gentle. He's been on the run for some time now, and reluctant for violence against his own people, and especially reluctant for violence against his greatest threat, the other fool, King Saul. You might remember just in chapter 24, one chapter previous, David had the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave. And his greatest threat in all of life would be alleviated, but he refused. Because even though he was a fool, he was the Lord's anointed king. Saul had repeatedly tried to kill David. And now, Nabal, for a much lesser offense is in line to be slaughtered by this anointed one. And so what's the difference? Why does David treat Saul this way and Nabal this way? Is it 
a case of David thinking lesser of Nabal because he wasn't royalty? Or was it just a bad day? Did he catch the temper on that day and let it get the better of him? Or perhaps David had a sense of entitlement over the lower beings as opposed to the people of status. We don't really know. But the similarities between Saul and Nabal certainly highlight the stark difference in how David approaches Saul and Nabal. But for how foolish Nabal is, his wife Abigail is wonderfully wise. She sees danger on the horizon. And Nabal's servant seeks her out to let her know what is happening. She immediately gets to work and gathers everything that she can find. Gifts of raisins and fig cakes and wine and lamb and bread. And as the 400 men are marching down the path toward the great raid, they are met with gifts. It's not a lot of food for 400 people, but it's a powerful gesture. And sometimes... Just sometimes a kind gesture lowers the tension of a situation. Sometimes a harsh or a gentle word turns away wrath. Abigail sees how serious this situation is getting. And when you think about what David and his men were going to do, David has said himself, that had they not been met on the road, surely none of the men of Nabal would be left living. So we're talking about 400 men raiding a compound of Nabal and slaughtering every living male. And Abigail pleads with him. She was direct. <laughs> She was compelling. If you look at verse 23 and on, it shows what this pleading looks like. It's got four parts. She thanks God for sparing David the blood guilt. She pleads for his forgiveness for the offense. She blesses David by saying that he will surely have a sure house. And then she expresses condemnation on any enemies of this future king. May they be like Nabal she says. And upon hearing her plea, surprisingly, David relents. And between Abigail's plea and David's response, the resounding theme seems to be that God has intervened and saved David from making a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake. Could you imagine the future king of Israel slaughtering the innocents in this family compound? God has saved David from himself. <laughs> and he used Abigail to do it. Let me show you in the text. We see that four times God has given credit for restraining David. Abigail says it in verse 26. It says, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, 
because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand? In verse 33, David acknowledges in his response that Abigail's words have kept him from blood guilt. He says, blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hands. But then David attributes that very same restraining to God himself, as if God is using Abigail for this type of restraint. Verse 34, for surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, and again in verse 39. Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. David was determined to kill. And in his great mercy, sometimes God saves us from ourselves. Of course, you see the big picture of the story that God is preserving for himself a king that he will raise up to the throne. And this king would not have that kind of blight on his record. But there is a clear application and a thanksgiving for you as well. Because I'm sure that as God preserves the king, he also preserves you, who are his children. That sometimes God saves us from ourselves. Look back at your life. Think about the times that you have been hurt or angry or insulted, and your initial instinct is to fire back in rage. But then something happens. <laughs> Restraint wins the moment. And now you look back on that situation and you say, thank God that I didn't do what I wanted to do. <laughs> because the consequences would have been dire. Or perhaps it wasn't anger. But maybe it was just stupidity. You didn't know any better. And you found yourself on the verge of doing something so stupid that it would have changed the course of your life forever. And you look back on that now and say, I thank God that he didn't allow me to do that. <laughs> or maybe it wasn't anger. Maybe it wasn't stupidity. Maybe it was just that you were tremendously naive. <laughs> And you put yourself in a situation and you thought you could handle it. But as it evolved, you realize that this situation is spinning out of control. And I need a way out. And I need it out fast. And God provided. Because in his great mercy, sometimes God saves us from ourselves. Or perhaps... It was temptation. A sin that you thought that you weren't particularly vulnerable toward. And so you took a casual attitude to guarding yourself against it, but before you knew it, your desires were taking control. 
and the temptation was starting to dig deep roots. And it was getting a grip on your life. But praise God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, He is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Look back at your life. I look back at my life and I think of so many times and so many ways that this has been true. That God, in His great mercy, sometimes saves us from ourselves. That's not to say that God doesn't allow you to experience the consequence of your actions. Sometimes He does. Nor is it to say that we should simply abandon our responsibility to do the right thing or to forego faithfulness and simply believe that God will always save us from ourselves, situationally speaking. We don't do that. That would be foolish. That would be like Saul. That would be like Nabal. But we can be thankful that just as God preserves his anointed king, he preserves his children as well. He saves us from ourselves. And when you consider the story, we see that sometimes God uses the words of another person to do this work in us. It's striking to me that in the story that David and his 400 are hell-bent on getting their revenge. The bloodlust is real, the murder is about to happen, and upon meeting Abigail and speaking to her, almost immediately there's a switch that flips. His disposition changes dramatically. All of a sudden the anger and the rage dissipates. He's going this way, and now it's like, okay, I'll go back home. <laughs> he seems almost humble. And the humility allows him to hear the wise promptings of a godly woman. The humble listen to godly rebuke when it comes. But the fools reject it. I wonder which one you are. Jonathan Edwards once said that the best protection one can have from the devil is, and his schemes is a humble heart. Humility is a strange thing, though, because once you think you've obtained it, <laughs> then you've lost it. I heard of a pastor one time who was voted the most humble pastor in America. His name was Dan Osborne. <laughs> and his church loved him so much and were so proud of him that they had a medal fashioned. And it said on the back of the medal, to the most humble pastor in America. And then the very next Sunday, they took it away. Because he decided to actually wear the medal to church. <laughs> Thomas Hardy was a famous British novelist and poet in the early 1900s. And as such, he could have commanded whatever he chose from any newspaper or publication that would, that would publish anything that he would simply submit to go to print. 
But every time he submitted a poem or a literary piece, he always included a self-addressed stamped envelope for the return of the manuscript should it be rejected. He had remained humble enough to think that his work could be turned down by an editor who would never be as nearly famous as he would be. Sometimes God uses the words of another person to save us from ourselves. Kids, high schoolers, college students, listen for a moment. Because often the wise counsel that God uses to save you from yourself comes from your parents. Now I know it doesn't feel that way. I know that sometimes it feels like they're just out to wreck your fun. That their agenda is different than your agenda. But have you ever considered the fact that they've seen more, done more, and made way more mistakes than you. <laughs> and as a result, they're trying to keep you from making the same mistakes that they've made. That's why God tells you to obey your parents. Adults, I know that many of you have been around the block, many, many, sometimes many, many, many times. And the temptation is to think that you've seen it and you know it. I've met plenty of seasoned men and women who are jaded to wise counsel from a friend, a friend that God might be using to help you. Don't be so brash as to think that you've completely mastered your desires. Sin crouches in the doorway, waiting to pounce upon you. And if the anointed one of God, if David, the one who is said to have God's own heart, <laughs> the one who has written the psalm, many of the psalms by the power of the Holy Spirit, if that one needs restraint, from the Lord, through the words of another person, and so do we. <laughs> In his great mercy, sometimes God saves us from ourselves. The story concludes with Abigail returning to the fool to find him drunk at the party. Sounds about right. And she waits to tell him the news until the very next day, and when she tells him, in the midst of his hangover, he catches a glimpse of how serious the situation was and how it almost cost him his life. It says his heart died within him and he turned to stone. In other words, he was scared. And then verse 39 tells us that just 10 days later, God's justice is served. The Lord struck Nabal and he died. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God's justice happens in God's timing. And David recognized that with Saul, but had not yet been satisfied 
because the justice had not been brought. <laughs> and now, he recognizes it with Nabal. Look at verse 39. As he attributes this to the Lord, David heard that Nabal was dead, and he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord, not me, the Lord, has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Let me conclude with one final observation. And that is with regard to Abigail. As she pled with David, she gave him a wonderful blessing. And we see it in verse 28. Abigail meets David on the path in the middle of his bloodlust, and she says to him, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. The blessing for David to have a sure house is actually a prophetic word from Abigail that points us to Jesus. She recognizes that David will be the king someday, but whether she knows it or not, she speaks not only of his earthly kingdom, but the eternal kingdom that will follow him through Jesus. 2 Samuel chapter 7 describes this very reality as God himself is interacting with David through the voice of the prophet Nathan, and he promises David something very, very specific. He says in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the sure house is the kingdom of Jesus. And the sure throne is the throne on which he sits. And so when you think about that, if God saves us from ourselves situationally in this life, how much greater is it that God saves us from ourselves eternally because of this life? And so we trust the Lord Jesus. And we rely on the Lord Jesus. And if you have yet to put your faith in him, I commend him to you because as you think about those situations, as you think about you, as you think about the sin, the desire, the anger, the ignorance, all of the things that could lead you down the path of destruction, there is only one who saves you from, himself, from yourself, the Lord God, through his Son, Jesus.